please remain standing with me out of respect for the word and turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, we're making great progress all the way to verses 12 and 13 today. Here is the infallible, inspired, inerrant word of God. For even as the body is one, and yet has many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one Spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, we are all made to drink of one Spirit. Let's ask God to help us understand. O God, who before the passion of your only begotten Son revealed his glory upon the holy mountain, grant to us that we, beholding by faith the light of his countenance, may be strengthened to bear our cross and be changed into his likeness from glory to glory. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. You may be seated. I'm sure that most of you, taking a guess at this, but I'm sure that most of you have seen it before. It's the... uh, it's the five-hour energy shot commercial on TV. Now, if you haven't seen the commercial, at least you've seen it in the supermarket. It's a, it's a little orangey and multiple-colored uh, canister, and it's designed to be a pick-me-up. And the commercial goes something like this. It's about 2.30 in the afternoon. Uh, you're coming off a lunch. You're feeling tired. You're full, and you're sluggish. And you can't quite concentrate, and so you're nodding off to sleep, or you're mentally dull and flat, and you have some options at this point in the day, and and the options might be a candy bar, but if you had a candy bar, you'd just get a quick sugar rush, and then you'd feel a big crash. And uh, you could have some coffee, but if you had that, you might get jittery because of the caffeine. Or, or you, could, you could get one of your favorite uh, energy drinks, but of course, if you drink 16 ounces of the energy drink, uh, you'll become full and bloated, and you'll lack energy. So apparently you have these options, and none of them are very good, and so the solution to the problem is a 5-ounce energy drink full of herbal supplements and amino acids and B vitamins and nutrients and just a dose of caffeine. Because that's the boost that we need in order to uh, make it to be in that long stretch between 2.30 and 5.30. Now, if we draw that example into the spiritual realm, uh, many would argue that that's kind of what the Christian life is like. Uh, yes, we're regenerated. Yes, we have the Holy Spirit. And that's, that's really wonderful. But really what the problem with us is, is that we're kind of like the person who's running out of energy at 2.30 in the afternoon. And they have various options, but none of them are really what they need. Instead of that, what they need is something like a five ounce energy shot, which is a pick-me-up. Because by taking that, or by experiencing that, we can take our Christianity to a whole new level. And so many today are being exhorted to seek that spiritual pick-me-up in what is called the second blessing of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. The second blessing of the baptism of the Holy Spirit, because in that we get the extra good stuff which helps us along in our Christian journey. And just to sort of illustrate that, let me uh, read a uh, example here from Enjoying God Ministries. Paula was raised in a Christian home where church attendance was commonplace. It wasn't until she was 11 that she began to have an interest in Jesus. She attended church camp and finally became consciously aware of her sin and trusted in Jesus Christ. Uh, but it wasn't until Paula was in her second year of college that her spiritual life really began to change. She accepted the invitation of a sorority sister to attend a Bible study that met each Wednesday night. And one Wednesday night she asked that some of the girls in her Bible study would pray for her. 
As they laid hands on her, Paul would cry to Jesus to forgive her those many years of spiritual apathy. And then one of the girls prayed, Oh Lord Jesus, we ask that you would pour out your spirit on Paul and empower her to live and witness as she never has before. And suddenly a strange warmth came over her. She began to cry to Jesus her praise and gratitude, but in words she'd never before spoken. From that day to the present, Paula has lived by God's grace passionately for the Son of God. And she has also prayed in this strange language that her friends told her is the gift of speaking in tongues. You see, there's the answer. Paula was a Christian. She was a good Christian. She studied her Bible. She went to church. She knew she believed in Jesus. She knew her sins were forgiven. But there was something missing. What she needed was that that pick-me-up to deliver her life from the ho-hum Christian life which most of us live. And the way to get that is to pray for this extraordinary intervention of the Holy Spirit as a second blessing to come upon her, to empower her, and then enable her to speak in prayer tugs and enjoy incredible outpourings of the Holy Spirit. But you see, I wanted to get this point, this whole concept of this second blessing idea of this baptism of the Holy Spirit, which Paul speaks of here in verse 13, uh, is this idea that it takes the Christian life from one of just the ordinary, of weakness, of apathy, a lack of spiritual vitality, a lack of assurance and joy, and it takes it to a whole new level of power, joy, passion, spiritual gifts, and exuberance. That's what you can get if you pray for this baptism of the Holy Spirit. Well, what I have done is sort of illustrate for you this incorrect understanding of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And it's this idea of adding a jolt to your Christian life. And I want to say in contrast that the Reformed understanding of the baptism of the Holy Spirit is radically different. It's like Adam as he was formed by the hand of God in Genesis chapter 2 verse 7 where God shaped him into a mud pie and he was just there, cold, lifeless, still, and without life until God breathed into his nostrils and he was quickened and the word of God tells us he became a living soul. That's what the baptism of the Holy Spirit is all about. It's about regeneration. It's about recreation. It's about being quickened and coming to new life. Not re-energized life. This morning I want us to unfold this very, very critical concept of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Because I hope that I have said enough for you by now to pick up the fact that Most people who believe in the charismatic gifts and their continuation with the church believe that in order for you to have those gifts and to have the Spirit-filled life, you have to first undergo this baptism and then they will argue there are a number of preparations that you as individuals must make in order to receive that and that churches must undergo in order to be Spirit-baptized churches. And this morning I want us to understand from the Word of God uh, what this baptism is and what it means for us as God's people. And so we're going to, first of all, look at the incorrect view. The incorrect view of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And I'm just going to name a few different groups and people so that we get a sense for how uh, this is consistently spoken of in broader Christianity today. And I remind you that this isn't just a narrow, isolated set of people uh, we began the study on 1 Corinthians chapter 12. We noted, and the one reason why we're spending so much time uh, going through 1 Corinthians 12 through 14 at such a snail's pace is because there are over, or reportedly over, 600 million charismatic Christians in the world. By far the most dominant expression of Christianity outside of Catholicism. And in fact, it penetrates across denominational lines and is even within Roman Catholicism and Lutheranism and Anglicanism and almost any other ism you can find out there. And so I want us to step back and understand what is being taught more broadly in the church today as the way that you can be revitalized and re-energized in your spirituality and Christianity. And I'm going to just simply read from an official statement from the Assemblies of God churches taken right off of their website, which says, Why is the Assemblies of God so committed to the doctrine of the baptism in the Holy Spirit with the initial evidence of speaking in tongues? 
And the answer that is given is because the baptism in the Holy Spirit is a vital experience of the Christian life. It is a special work of the Spirit beyond salvation. And then they argue that the church is committed to it because the experience is such an important focus of New Testament Christianity. And then secondly, it clarifies what this is and how it can be uh, found or evidenced. Section 8 of their beliefs says, The baptism of believers in the Holy Spirit is witnessed by the initial sign of speaking with tongues as the Spirit of God gives utterance. You see, it's just like the story that we read about this girl Paula with a lackluster ho-hum Christianity. All of a sudden they pray and somehow the Holy Spirit comes upon them. They are baptized in the Holy Spirit in an extra uh, effective way. Now begin to speak in tongues and feel energy and power. Just keep noting those words, power, energy, things like that. Because uh, they're riddled, these statements are literally riddled with those buzzwords and those keywords. Another person who holds to this particular view who has had widespread influence, especially among uh, Reformed Christians, is Martin Lloyd-Jones. And it's surprising to many people when they hear that name Martin Lloyd-Jones being uh, associated with the Charismata and with the Second Blessing theology and with the Baptism in the Holy Spirit idea uh, that is characteristic of Charismatics because he was such a powerful proponent of Calvinism for most of the 20th century. Uh, But he believes in this, and he describes it like this, saying it's a work that is distinct from regeneration. He says the baptism of the Spirit is a new, fresh manifestation of God to the soul. You have an overwhelming knowledge given to you of God's love in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. This is the greatest and most essential characteristic of the baptism with the Spirit. It's experiential. It's undeniable. It's overwhelming joy. And the person who has this is carried not only from doubt to belief, but to certainty. In other words, you have a second class Christian faith. If you don't have this, you have a lack of assurance, you have a lack of experience, you have a lack of joy, you have a lack of knowing God at this deep level, and you have a lack of a passion for the presence and the power and the holiness of God. And he says this particular manifestation of the Holy Spirit is essential for the church because without it, it's not authenticated to the world. And so... He prompted many to seek revival of the church through this baptism of the Holy Spirit. And the reason why that he did that is so that the church would be authenticated in the eyes of the world. This is what he says. The Christian church today is failing. Yes, we all agree with that. It has in every generation, though. It's failing lamentably. He says it's not enough even to be orthodox. You see that? It's not enough to be orthodox. It's not enough to preach the truth. It's not enough to know the catechism. It's not enough to expound the scriptures. It's not enough to be doctrinally sound. It's not enough to have doctrinally sound and biblical worship. This is what the church must have, he says. You must be orthodox. That's true. But we need authentication. We need authentication. The world needs to see something happening that will arrest them and make them stop and think again. You see, this is the mentality. Now, you can be orthodox, you can be good Christians, you can know your Bible and all that, but really, that's the reason why the church is weak and failing in the eyes of the world, because it doesn't have this, uh, this joyful baptism of the Holy Spirit. And this is what really bothered me when I was reading about this. Is that he said that anybody who teaches a theology of the baptism in the Holy Spirit that is contrary to this Pentecostal charismatic view is guilty of quenching the Holy Spirit. Guilty of quenching the Holy Spirit. I just read one one other example of this commitment to the second blessing Baptism in the Holy Spirit kind of idea. It comes from CBN. Not always known for their orthodoxy, but that's what struck me about it so much. 
CBN, you know, Christian Broadcaster Network, run by Pat Robertson, who runs around uh, saying that uh, Hurricane Katrina was on account of homosexuals in New Orleans, and that Haiti was devastated by an earthquake because of of uh, voodoo priests. You know that guy. Uh, but 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 he didn't write the article. But somebody on staff did, and it certainly represents his views. And and this is what they argue when they think about the uh, baptism and the Holy Spirit. They say the Spirit is sometimes mentioned in church from time to time, but so vaguely and infrequently that this little girl, as part of the story, could only guess what sort of ghost this Holy Ghost must be. So one day, when she ventured down to the dark furnace room in the church's cellar, she decided with a child's firm logic that this was the spooky place where the Holy Ghost lurked. The fact is, adult believers often act as if the Holy Spirit really was hiding in the church cellar. They may know something about the Spirit, but they don't know Him personally or realize that He is God in the same way the Son and the Father are God. Do you hear what they just said? And never mind the, 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 uh, the, the little story about the, the cute story of we're all hiding the Holy Ghost in the basement of our churches, which is completely obnoxious. But, but it's this other idea that you may be able to recite the creeds of the church. You may be able to recite the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed and the Chalcedonian Creed and the Athanasian Creed and unite your voice to the voices of Christians, millions and millions and millions of Christians who have confessed the truth about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit for 2,000 years. You may know from the Word of God that the Holy Spirit is actually divine, co-equal with the Father and the Son, who shares the very same essence, though a unique and distinct person. You may have all of that, and that's fine. But here's the arrogance. Without this baptism of the Holy Spirit, you don't really believe He's divine. You don't believe He's divine like the Father is divine and the Son is divine. In other words, condemning you as a heretic because you don't believe it. Because you don't believe the Word of God teaches this. Well, why do they urge us to seek this? Why are we all wrong? Why are we actually unorthodox even though we profess to be something different? Why? Well, because we don't have the power. Again, the same language and vernacular comes up that you would have found in the Assembly of God, Martin Lloyd-Jones... Across the board, you can find this in people who try to defend and promote the charismatic way. But it's about power. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is an empowering for service that takes place in the life of the Christian. In it, we are immersed in the power of the Holy Spirit. And once we have it, the Spirit reproduces the ministry of Jesus in us, including miracles and healings. And then it goes on to say, We can undertake making disciples of all nations with some degree of success without the baptism of the Holy Spirit. But when we do, we are undertaking a supernatural task with limited power. Now, I've emphasized power repeatedly because this is what it seems to be all about. In Lloyd-Jones, who says we need something that will make the world just stand up and listen. Power. Without an experience of power, we can be orthodox, but not really orthodox. Uh, What it seems to me is a complete dissatisfaction with the fundamental nature of reality as God has set it up in this age. You know, if we... If we had this great power that's being spoken of, uh, how could it be that we could speak as... Uh, The Apostle John speaks at the end of the book of Revelation, holding out the hope of a new heavens and a new earth for all those who are, are weary under the brokenness of this age. Where there the Apostle says in Revelation chapter 21, talking about this new age, God will wipe away every tear from the eyes of God's people. There won't be any death. There won't be any mourning. There won't be any crying. There won't be any pain. And you could add to that, there won't be any more weakness. You know, Christians ought to to, to long for that day and to dream of that day and to hope for that day. But that doesn't mean we pull heaven down to earth.
I'm afraid that the reasons for wanting this power are so evident in, in the way it's being described. It's for selfish purposes. It's for self-exaltation. It, it's, it's very similar to the critique that Paul is offering here in 1 Corinthians 12-14 through to the Corinthians who are obsessed with the, the gift of, of speaking in tongues and maybe secondary prophecy and looking at everybody else as if they're second class powerless Christians. Why do they want it? It's for self-exaltation. It's so that the community around us will sit up and take notice of us. It's so that there will be a red phone in the White House with a pipeline to the, to the top-notch evangelical leaders and uh, asking them what they think about policy matters. You see, it's about, it's about access to cultural power. That's what it is. It's about bigger buildings and more people and larger audiences and more community presence. That's what it's about. It's about power for now, for selfish purposes. It's false. You say, where could people come up with such a false understanding? I'm just going to walk us through some passages that are often used, not to have a basic understanding of, of the incorrect view, that we do need to at least understand where it comes from in the Word of God, so that if you are challenged about it, you'll have an answer. Remember, we need to have an answer. We need to be able to explain why we believe in certain doctrines, why we believe some are true and others are false, and we need to know that from the Word. And so, I hope you have come armed with your New American Standard Version Bibles this morning so that you can see this for yourself. And one of the passages that's often used, first of all, is John chapter 20, verse 22. Uh, there you know that it's the, uh, the day of Jesus' resurrection. It's in the afternoon. Uh, there you also know that the disciples are huddled behind closed doors because they are terrified, because they are ashamed of their faith, because of a lot of reasons. And Jesus all of a sudden appears in their midst. Now, this is an important passage to set up a pattern that's uh, used uh, to prove this baptism of the Holy Spirit. But here uh, we're told that, that Jesus breathed on them instead of them received the Holy Spirit. And, and so the assumption is here that the disciples and these apostles have definitively received the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit and they have been recreated, regenerated, and made new. And that's very important in the overall scheme of the argument. You see, because that's the argument here. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is after regeneration. It's a second blessing for Christians. It's a second blessing for people who are already regenerate. And then you turn to Acts chapter 2. You turn to Acts chapter 2. You remember that Jesus told the disciples on a couple of occasions... uh, in that 40 days he was here on earth until he ascended, that uh, they would be clothed with power on high, be baptized by the Holy Spirit. That's the very language of Acts 1.5. They would be baptized by the Holy Spirit. And so, you know the story in Acts 2. We've already looked at this uh, fairly recently. And uh, what do you know happens, but here the Holy Spirit is poured out, and what happens with the disciples? They begin to speak in tongues. They begin to testify of... The mighty deeds of God, which are the redemptive acts of God, the cross and resurrection, the ascension of Jesus Christ, yes. Uh, but, but you see here, then Peter stands up boldly and begins to testify and preach like he's never preached before. And you see, that's the beginning of the argument right there. Is that upon these disciples and these apostles who have walked with Jesus, who know the power of the Holy Spirit because they've already been regenerated, what they really needed was power from on high. The second blessing to take their Christian faith and their witness to a whole new level. And they couldn't do that until it was poured out. Never mind the fact that they're missing the biggest part of this passage, which is the enormous redemptive historical event of Pentecost and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in fulfillment of prophecy. That's the enormous idea of this passage. But it's appealed to as one of those passages where you say, see, it's a second blessing. 
You move on from there to Acts chapter 10, and uh, you're probably somewhat familiar with the passage here. It's Cornelius, who is identified as a devout man, who was a God-fearer. He was never a part of the synagogue. He didn't become circumcised. He was Greek or Roman by background. Peter receives a vision to go to uh, his, uh, his residence and to preach the word there. And uh, we're told that while he was preaching, verse 44, chapter 10, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who were listening to the message. All the circumcised believers who came with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. And they were hearing them speaking with tongues and exalting God. And so there you have your second example, supposedly, of believers who, upon hearing the preaching of the Word, uh, received the outpouring or this baptism of the Holy Spirit, and then they began to speak with tongues to certify and confirm that they had come into this second blessing experience. So there it is. Second, uh, ironclad proof tap. Uh, text that they would argue for uh, this pattern of well you already have Christians which is completely in dispute in this passage by the way but let's set that aside they're supposedly Christians and then here you have this uh, second blessing this outpouring well the, uh, the, uh, the last example and this is really all they have and that's Acts 19 the last example that is used is Acts 19 and uh, Paul is uh, encountering here Twelve, what were disciples of John the Baptist? He uh, breaks down the Christian faith to them. They were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus, and then Paul laid his hands upon them. The Holy Spirit came upon them. And they began speaking with tongues and prophesying. And so there they say, "There you have it. There's your third example of this process of people who regenerated, who now have this climactic second blessing experience, which is attended with the speaking of tongues and new power for the Christian faith." So there it is. You have about three passages that are used that uh, supposedly illustrate for us this baptism in the Holy Spirit. And uh, this is what it's all about. This powerful outpouring of the Spirit for powerful ministry attested to by powerful proclamation and powerful speaking in tongues. They tell us how to get this gift. They tell us how to get this gift. And I'll quickly go over the first three because they're fairly obvious. Well, the first two at least are. Uh, the first one is you're supposed to pray for it. And that makes sense. Uh, you're supposed to yield to it and get ready for it secondly. Because, you know, the Holy Spirit can't use somebody who hasn't fully yielded themselves over. Uh, the other one that Pat Robertson is concerned about in the CBN crowd is concerned about is that people... Uh, renounce fortune-telling and horoscopes. So if you, if you have that, you can't have those. But the other two I'm going to take from a, uh, a widely listened to uh, Reformed Baptist preacher, John Piper, who tells us how to get the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And he tells us that, that, that one way you get ready for the baptism of the Holy Spirit is you have emotional music. You need to have emotional music. And he takes Martin Lloyd-Jones to task here, who he absolutely agrees with on this baptism of the Holy Spirit as the second blessing thing. And, and uh, we're told by uh, Lloyd-Jones' grandson that he didn't like uh, the, new, the new kind of music that was starting to roll across the church as a wave in the late 60s and early 70s, the emotive music. And Lloyd-Jones was very opposed to that because he believed that the distribution of the Holy Spirit was to be sovereign. It couldn't be prepared for. The Piper argues, no, this is what you need to do. And this is consistent with people who hold the second blessing view is the church needs to have emotional music so that it can express the assurance and joy of the Holy Spirit. And then the other thing that we're told to have is small groups. Small groups in the church... He argues we need to create a small group network in the church where people can minister to one another in the context perhaps less institutionally restrictive of the Spirit. That's how you prepare for it. It's mechanical. You see, if you just follow the steps, 
Uh, then the Holy Spirit falls, we get the second blessing, and the church overflows. We have new people, new converts, new powerful witness. Some of us might speak in tongues, some of us might start performing miracles, but this is just how you do it. You have emotional music and you have small groups where we can get vulnerable with each other and talk about our faith in private, more intimate settings. Now, I'm just going to pause there before I get into the Reformed understanding and the Reformed interpretation to simply point this out, that so much of what is being called for in the Christian church today, uh, not only being practiced in evangelicalism, but being called for in the Reformed church today, is a style of worship and music and church life that fits with a second blessing baptism in the Holy Spirit theology. That's it. Uh, often we as Reformed people uh, are sort of upset because we don't have the bigger megachurches like everybody has around us. Uh, we don't seem to have the cultural reach or recognition. Uh, we want bigger churches. We want more people. We want bigger buildings. We want bigger budgets, more money and all this. So the way we do it is we look at how everybody else is doing. It must be successful. It's, it's working for them. They're successful. So, so we incorporate it. So what do we do? We follow the worship. We have the emotional music. We have the intimate bonding times, the small group meetings of the church, because everybody knows that's where it's at if we want to be spiritual. And we throw our theology out the window. And that's so important to understand, because Reformed people teach based upon the Word of God that the way that you grow and the way that people mature in Jesus Christ is not through tactics and techniques, but it's through Christ. That's how you grow. It's all over our confessions. It's all over the Word of God. The preaching of the Word and the administration of the sacrament is the way that we are intensified with our union with Christ and in Christ is every single spiritual blessing. This has been the theology and the practice of the church for centuries and centuries. And yet now you see Reformed churches all over the landscape dropping their practices Changing them, remaking their churches over. According to a theology that's radically contrary to their own. Because one experiences. Instead of the experience that God has ordained for us, which is Christ. And yet that's ho hum. That's 2.30 on the afternoon needing to pick me up kind of Christianity because it doesn't have the apparent vitality and signs and wonders and emotions well we need to consult the word and the word of God it tells us how to worship it tells us how to receive Christ it tells us how to be built up and to be nurtured and to become mature in Christ and that's through the means of grace but it also tells us a right understanding, coming back to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, of what the baptism of the Holy Spirit is. And uh, one of the biggest problems with this entire interpretation of the baptism of the Holy Spirit is this. Uh, the entire position is premised on the fact that there are two baptisms. Two distinct baptisms. There's a baptism by Christ with water as a sign and seal of the new covenant and engrafting into the visible church. And there's a second baptism which is by the Holy Spirit which is about power. The only problem with that is it doesn't fit the grammar of the passage. Uh, 1 Corinthians 12.13 it's even translated wrong in the New American Standard Version. Uh, where it says, by one spirit we were baptized. It doesn't say that in the original. It actually says we were baptized in the spirit. It says we were baptized in the spirit. It doesn't say by the spirit. You see, there are two baptisms according to the word of God. There's, there's one baptism, and that's a baptism by Jesus Christ. Now, grammatically, we know this argument is completely wrong here. But all we have to do is turn to the Word of God to find out that it's Jesus Christ who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Because John the Baptist tells us that in John chapter 1, verse 33, where he says that Jesus will baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. 
There aren't two baptisms, people of God. The entire position is, is predicated on a false understanding. There are not two baptisms. There's one baptism. It's by Christ, and it's with the Spirit. See why it's so important for us to keep going back to the Word. I remember reading an article last week where uh, the criticism was that the people who don't accept uh, this idea of the charismatic gifts and who are cessationists are, are, are that way just because of tradition. And it was argued that oh, what we really need to do is get back to the Word because the Word has all the answers. And I said, great, let's go back to the Word because the Word is clear. There are two baptisms. There's one. And then Paul says... When you were baptized with the Spirit, you drank of the Spirit. Look at the whole verse, verse 13. He says, By one Spirit we are all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we are all made to drink of one Spirit. You see, in the original, if you look at this uh, grammatically, these phrases are parallel. One informs the other, in other words. And so the clarification is this. You are baptized with the Spirit. And Paul says, what I mean to say is this. We all were made to drink of the Spirit. Which means that at your conversion, you were baptized with the Spirit. At your conversion, you were baptized with the Spirit. At the conversion, at your conversion, at your regeneration is when you received this wonderful gift of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And at that point, you were made partakers of Christ in every spiritual blessing which is His. You see... Even Martin Lloyd-Jones was convinced that 1 Corinthians 12.13 completely uh, refuted his argument because he read the grammar of the passage too. And so his way of saying it didn't apply was to just say, Paul is talking about something else. But In reality, if you look at the language of the text, it's virtually identical with every single other New Testament testimony of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Paul is not referring to something new or different or distinct. He's explaining what it means. When you are baptized by Christ, you are made to drink of the Holy Spirit and partake of all the spiritual blessings which are ours in Christ because He possesses the Spirit without measure. Without digging too much into refuting, counteracting all of the arguments that I gave you about this pattern, let's just think about it. We don't even need to turn there anymore. But this idea that there's this pattern that develops in the New Testament that uh, at first Christians are regenerated and received some portion of the Holy Spirit, an inadequate one, but a good one. Uh, and then after that, if they're yielded and prayerful and sing emotional songs and stuff like that, then they can get this uh, extra uh, bonus, uh, the, uh, the extra portion of the Holy Spirit, that pattern there. Uh, it's false. Because in John chapter 20, 22, uh, there's a major, major, major problem with the whole argument from that passage. And your translations all say this, and they are guilty of it. Uh, it reads, And Jesus breathed upon them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. And actually it doesn't say that. It says Jesus breathed. And then he commanded them to receive the Spirit. And it is a preparation for what? It's a preparation for Pentecost. It's Jesus saying, it's coming. It's coming. He exhaled as sort of an illustration or as um, a symbol of, of this, is, this is it. It's coming. The Holy Spirit is going to be breathed out or poured out. 
And of course, we saw that happen in Acts chapter 2. As far as the other passages, Acts 10 and, and Acts chapter 19, uh, it's, it's very, very clear from those passages that those people were not believers in Jesus Christ. It might be true that Cornelius was a devout man who believed, and it might be true that the, the disciples of John the Baptist uh, had, had received the baptism under repentance, but, but remember, uh, those disciples didn't even know that there was such a thing as the Holy Spirit, the passage says. Can you be a Christian and not know there is a Holy Spirit? Well, obviously not. If you analyze those passages in context in terms of the very things they say, you'll begin to realize there's no pattern developing there at all. They were unbelievers, and then the Holy Spirit sovereignly came upon them and regenerated them, just as, as is described for us in John chapter 3. Where the Holy Spirit is like the wind, Jesus says, and blows where He wills. So is everyone born of the Spirit of God. In the sovereignty of God, He poured out His Spirit. What's illustrated there is not a second blessing. It's regeneration. It's about new life. But you come back and you say, what is all of this about though? What is it? Where do we get this language of Spirit baptism. Where, where, where does it all come from? What's it all about if we were to put it together here? And I think one of the, the most important things we can do to understand why this phrase occurs in the New Testament and what it's all about is to, to, to just listen to the Gospels. You know, the phrase baptism in the Holy Spirit only occurs seven times in the New Testament. Four of them are in the Gospels. And one of them is spoken by Christ. But just listen to these statements in the Gospels. We're told that Jesus will baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire, Matthew 3.11. Mark 1.8, John the Baptist again testifying that, he will, that Jesus will baptize with the Holy Spirit. John the Baptist again testifying, Luke 3.16, Jesus will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And then John 1.33, the Baptist again saying, He who sent me to baptize in water said to me, He upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining upon, this is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. Now, four of the references to baptism in the Holy Spirit are right there. They all come from the mouth of John the Baptist. And what you need to ask yourself the question is this. What would a Jewish audience who was hearing that for the first time think of? That's the question you have to ask. If you want to get at this question, you don't rush forward to Acts chapter 2. They had not been written yet. You say, what would a Jewish audience have heard? There is this one coming who we're going to call Messiah and He is going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. What are they thinking of? Would they think of tongues and prophecy? Would they think of signs and wonders? What they were thinking of is prophecy. Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 25 and following. That God says, I will sprinkle you with clean water and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. Joel chapter 2, verse 28, where God prophesies to the prophet Joel, uh, it will come about after this, I will pour out my spirit. You see, these are prophecies of the messianic age. And these are prophecies of what will come to pass when Messiah comes and the belief that was proclaimed across the Old Testament prophets. If you look at Isaiah, you look at Joel, you look at Jeremiah, you look at Ezekiel, numerous places there are these prophecies of a great outpouring of the Holy Spirit. It was taught that when Messiah comes, there will be this pouring out of the Spirit of God in a way that had not ever been experienced by the Old Testament saints. You see, it was pointing to a whole new working of God that was consistent with the kingdom of God coming with Christ.
And we know that's to be true because of the apostolic interpretation of Old Testament prophecy about the Spirit. Peter in Acts chapter 2 verse 33 looking at this entire experience of the Spirit of the rushing noise of the tongues of cloven fire resting above the heads of the disciples of this whole uh, speaking in tongues and all this was going on Peter is preaching about he's explaining what's going on and he finally says here Therefore having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He poured forth what you see and hear. You see what Peter says? Peter says that this is the fulfillment of Ezekiel 36. This is the fulfillment of Joel chapter 2. This is the fulfillment of Isaiah 11. This is the fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 60. This is the fulfillment of Jeremiah 31-33. This is the fulfillment of the Scriptures. He's received the promise of the Holy Spirit. And as Messiah, He is manifesting His Messiahship as He is installed at the right hand of God the Father. And He is baptized now with the Holy Spirit. You see, it's all associated with Christ taking His position as Lord at the right hand of the Father, the Messiah, the mediator of the New Covenant, mediating the glorious spiritual blessings of the New Testament. That's why the language of baptism in the Spirit even comes out. It's about Christ, who has earned this gift of the Spirit through His obedience. On the cross, and finally taking His seat at the right hand of the Father in heaven, Peter and the apostles proclaimed fulfillments of Old Testament prophecy. It's about the Holy Spirit being poured out in rich abundance upon the people of God. About a quickening, a spiritual quickening of dead people and bringing them to life in Christ. And so you see, as you step back and as you examine this idea of this baptism in the Holy Spirit in view of Scripture, you see that it's about... This climactic, messianic outpouring of the Holy Spirit unto regeneration, new creation, and new life in Jesus Christ. And when you see it for what it is, this sovereign administration of the Holy Spirit by the grace of God, through Jesus Christ, you begin to realize that you don't have anything else that you're supposed to long for except for the full outworking of it in the new heavens and new earth. That you begin to realize there's nothing you have to do to make yourself ready for some future hope for second blessing of the Holy Spirit. You have it. When you were regenerated, you were given the Spirit in fullness. You were given His graces and His gifts and His joy and His power. And we know that is true because the Word of God tells us it's true. I just uh, want to close this morning by getting you to think of what is yours now. And I want you to be listening to this in view of this idea of it's 2.30 in the afternoon and your Christian life is a little bit sluggish and you need something new to give you a pick-me-up. I just want you to hear about what is yours now because the Spirit has been given to you. Listen to these graces. You have been spiritually illuminated in order that you may receive the truth with faith and love. 1 Corinthians 2.12, the Apostle says, We have received, not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God. You have been transformed. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. We all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory as by the Spirit. You are regenerated and made partakers of the kingdom of God. John chapter 3, verse 5. Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. You have received the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16, where the Apostle proclaims to the Corinthians, You are a temple of God, and the Spirit of God dwells in you. You've been united to Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 12, 13, By one Spirit we're all baptized into one body, and that body is the body of Christ. 
You have received the personal presence of Christ in your heart. Ephesians chapter 3 verses 16 and 17. The Apostle Paul prays for the Ephesians that they will be strengthened with power through His Spirit in the inner man so that Christ would dwell in their hearts by faith. You have been granted access to the Father's presence through the Spirit. Ephesians 2.18 For through Him we both have access in one Spirit to the Father. You have received, and this is so very important, you have received the testimony and assurance of your adoption by the Father. Remember all those arguments. That what we really need this second blessing for is for deeper certainty, for deeper joy, a deeper assurance that we are the children of God. Well, this is what the Bible teaches. You already have that, Romans 8.16. The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are the children of God. And when you have received the Holy Spirit in regeneration and conversion and quickening and new creation, you were given this constant prompting that Paul describes in Galatians chapter 4, verse 6. God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. And that's just a short list. There isn't something new to look for. There isn't some second blessing waiting for you. There isn't something more that's going to happen to you if you just yield properly. You've been given the Spirit of God. And God has not been inadequate or deficient. We're not second-rate Christians because we don't have this unbiblical concept of empowerment. Everything that you need, the apostles proclaim under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, you have. Don't ever forget what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. In Christ we have received, as we have seated with Him in the heavenly places, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. There's nothing else to look for. By the grace of God, we have been regenerated converted, renewed, and recreated and given the glorious gift of the Holy Spirit as our eternal, permanent, unfading possession. You have been made to drink of the Spirit. And so because of that, we sing, praise God, from whom all spiritual blessings flow. Let's pray.